Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-9, Babur and the Rajputs. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Babur, the great-great-grandson of Timur, captures Kabul in Afghanistan in 1504. In 1519, Babur begins sending probing raids into India to gauge the response, but makes very few gains. Six years later, he invades India a second time, this time with the intention to stay. In April 1526, Babur wins the Battle of Panipat, conquering Delhi and establishing the Mughal dynasty. And with that, let's discuss Babur's conflict with the Rajputs of India. The Situation in India There were five powerful Muslim rulers in India when Babur invaded in 1526. He had already defeated the most powerful one, Ibrahim Lodi. Second was Sultan Shahibuddin Shah of the Malwa Sultanate based in what is now the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. However, Shahibuddin had lost much of his territory to Rana Sangha, leader of the Hindu Rajputs. Third was Muzaffar Shah of Gujarat. However, he passed away a few days before the Battle of Panipat. Fourth were the Bahmani Sultanates of the Deccan. We discussed them in our series on Malik Ambar. Finally, there was Nusrat Shah who ruled in Bengal. There were also two powerful Hindu Rajas in India, Rana Sangha of the Rajputs, whom we just mentioned, and the Raj of the Vijayanagar Sultanate in southern India. Now that Babur was in India, it was clear that he had come to stay. Unlike his ancestor Timur, Babur did not come just to take plunder and leave. On the contrary, he took a great interest in his newly acquired territory in India. In fact, in his memoirs, the Babur Nama, he writes extensively about his observations and thoughts on India. Let's read through a few of them. Here's what he wrote about India's geography. Hindis call these mountains Sawalak Parbat. In the Hindi tongue, Sawalak means one lakh and one quarter, that is 125,000. And Parbat means a hill, which makes 125,000 hills. The snow of these mountains never lessens. It issues white for many districts of Hind, as for example, Lahore, Sihrind, and Sambal. The range, which in Kabul is known as Hindu Kush, comes from Kabul eastwards into Hindustan with slight inclination to the south. The Hindustanat are to the south of it. Tibet lies to the north of it and of that unknown horde called Kas. Here's what he wrote about the people of India. Most of the inhabitants of Hindustan are pagan. They call a pagan 
a Hindi. Most Hindus believe in the transmigration of souls. All artisans, wage earners, and officials are Hindis. In our countries, the nomads get tribal names. Here, the settled people of the cultivated lands and villages get tribal names. Again, every artisan there follows the trade that has come down to him from forefather to forefather. Here's what he wrote about the rhinoceros. This is also a large animal equal in bulk to perhaps three buffaloes. The opinion current in this country that it can lift an elephant on its horn seems mistaken. It has a single horn on its nose more than nine inches long. One or two inches is not seen. His thoughts on the peacock. It is a beautifully colored and splendid animal. Its form is not equal to its coloring and beauty. Its body may be as large as the crane's, but it is not so tall. On the head of both the cock and the hen are twenty to thirty feathers rising some two or three inches high. The hen has neither color nor beauty. The head of the cock has an iridescent collar. Its neck is of a beautiful blue. His thoughts on mangoes. Mangoes, when good, are very good, but many, as are eaten, few are first-rate. They are usually plucked, unripe, and ripened in the house. Unripe, they make excellent condiments, are good also preserved in syrup. Taken altogether, the mango is the best fruit of Hindustan. His Opinion of India's Calendar The people of Hind, having thus divided the year into three seasons of four months each, divide each of these seasons by taking from each, the two months of the force of the heat, rain, and cold. Of the hot months, the last two, Jeth and Asar, are the force of the heat. Of the rainy months, the first two, Sawan and Bahadan, are the force of the rains. Of the cold season, the middle two, Pus and Mah, are the force of the cold. By this classification, there are six seasons in Hindustan. Babur provided detailed information about many other topics such as the time units used in India, weights and measures, and the financial system. In fact, he provides a very detailed description of the treasury at Agra. Babur also built a garden in Delhi, which was something he did in every place he conquered. The Mughals were famous for building these elaborate gardens throughout their territory, a practice Babur pioneered. Master of India Now that he had Delhi and Agra, Babur set his mind to conquering as much of India as he could. After all, there was still, obviously, lots of territory in India ripe for conquest if he could pull it off. This project of trying to conquer India would keep Babur and his descendants busy for many years to come but there were still many obstacles in his way. One of the biggest obstacles were the Afghans. 
the Lodi dynasty that had ruled the Delhi Sultanate, which Babur had overthrown, was an Afghan dynasty. There were still many members of that dynasty around, and many people were still loyal to them. The Afghans may have been subdued by Babur's conquest of Delhi, but they were far from beaten, and many of them viewed Babur as a foreign usurper coming from Central Asia to conquer India, which in many respects he was. Hence, there were several attempts to overthrow Babur. One of them came from within. Ibrahim Lodi's mother, whose name was Bua, tried to poison Babur in 1526. Of course, we can understand why she wanted to kill him. Not only had Babur taken her son's territory, but her son was also killed in defense of his territory. After Babur defeated Ibrahim Lodi, he allowed several members of the Lodi family to remain in the palace, including Bua. One day, Babur ate some food and got extremely sick. Babur recovered, had the cook interrogated, and the cook pointed out Bua. Bua was stripped of all of her possessions, then given to one of Babur's men as a slave. Ibrahim Lodi also had a son. Babur did not harm him in any way, but he did send the former prince to Kabul, where he was kept under the watchful eye of his son, Kamran. Babur's forces now began pushing east towards Bengal. Master Ali Kuli, the Ottoman artillery specialist, had been testing bigger and better cannons. Babur used these cannons to attack and pacify the Afghan resistance to the east. Over the next year and a half, Babur's territory expanded across northern India. He defeated the Afghans at Bayana, 45 miles east of Agra. Then he conquered Doholpur, 30 miles south of Agra. Then Gwalior, 70 miles south of Agra. Over the next year and a half, Babur's territory expanded across northern India. He defeated the Afghans at Bayana, 45 miles east of Agra. Then he conquered Doholpur, 30 miles south of Agra. Then Gwalior, 70 miles south of Agra. Meanwhile, his son, Prince Humayun, led an army east towards Bihar and Bengal. Humayun conquered Kalpi, which was 270 miles east of Delhi, then Jaunpur, 380 miles east of Delhi, and then Ghazipur, 430 miles east of Delhi. Babur's territory was quickly expanding across northern India. Humayun's army was now closer to the modern Bangladeshi border than it was to Delhi. Rana Sangha By early 1527, Rana Sangha was now ready to fight Babur. We discussed Rana Sangha a bit in the previous episode. He was the Hindu Rajput king of the Sasodia clan. And the Rajputs are a warrior caste, mostly Hindu and mostly based in Mawar in the southern region of what is now the Rajasthan state of India. 
Rana Sangha had initially called for Babur to come into India and fight Ibrahim Lodi in the Delhi Sultanate. He expected Babur to fight, pillage, and then leave. This would have allowed the Rajputs to defeat the weakened Delhi Sultanate and establish Hindu rule over India. Of course, we know that did not happen. Babur did not leave India after defeating Ibrahim Lodi at the Battle of Panipat. In fact, not only did Babur stay, he was expanding his territory into northeast India. Rana Sangha was very upset about the way things turned out. He gathered up a large force and marched out to battle Babur. Rana Sangha was joined by Hassan Khan, the ruler of Mewat. Mewat is a region that covers parts of the northeastern Rajasthan and eastern Haryana Indian states. Hassan Khan was the leader of the Khanzada dynasty. The Khanzadas were a Muslim Rajput clan. Most Rajputs were Hindu, but there were a few who had converted to Islam. The Khanzada clan was one of these Rajputs that had accepted Islam. Remember, the Rajputs are a warrior caste. Recognizing this threat from the Hindu and Muslim Rajputs, Babur gathered his forces and went to meet Rana Sangha in February 1527. Babur headed south before setting up camp at Sikri, a small town about 21 miles southwest of Agra. His troops from Bayana, about 45 miles southwest of Agra, soon joined him there as well. Babur spies reported that the Rajputs were encamped at Basawar, about 35 miles southwest from him. With this information, Babur moved his forces further east before setting up camp near a lake. Babur decided this was where he was going to hold his ground. His forces secured their cannons on carts and they began building a temporary defensive structure similar to the one we discussed in the previous episode at the Battle of Panipat. The main difference was that at Panipat, the carts had been tied together with ropes. This time, they were using chains. Babur's army was very advanced for this time definitely more advanced than his Rajput opponents. Master Ali Kuli, the Ottoman artillery specialist, had brought along the new and more powerful cannons he had been developing. And the matchlock men lined up behind the cart barricade, prepared to fire on the enemy. Babur arranged his cannons to the left, center, and right in preparation for battle. His forces included the matchlock men, mounted cavalry, cannons, swivel guns, and mortars. Swivel guns are small cannons that could be swung around in a wide arc to fire on nearby enemy combatants. Mortars are similar to cannons, but with very short barrels. They shoot shells high in the air, but fall a relatively short distance away. Cannons, on the other hand, shoot shells in a relatively flat arc that travels much further. Babur also had several thousand Indian allies in his ranks. 
These were the various cities and peoples and groups who had pledged allegiance to him or submitted to him either before or after he conquered the Delhi Sultanate. Babur described his military preparations in his memoirs. Our front was defended by carts chained together, the space between each two, across which the chain stretched, being seven or eight kauri. Mustafa Rumi had the carts made in the Rumi way, excellent carts, very strong and suitable. As Ustad Ali Kuli was jealous of him, Mustafa was posted to the right, in front of Humayun. Meanwhile, the Rajput army under Rana Sangha's command was made up of 100,000 horsemen and 500 elephants. He had no guns, no cannons, and no mortars. This was the military equivalent of bringing a knife to a gunfight. The Rajputs were literally bringing long knives, that is, swords and spears, to a fight where their opponents were using guns and cannons. Despite Babur's technological advantage, his soldiers were still very nervous. That's because the Rajputs were a warrior caste and Babur's troops were aware of their reputation as fearless warriors. And to further complicate matters, a convoy had recently arrived from Kabul with about 500 men and several camels carrying, believe it or not, barrels of wine. Within the convoy was an astrologer. This astrologer added to the troops' anxiety by predicting Babur would be defeated. It seems even Babur was a little unsure. Though he sounds very confident in his memoirs, he chose this moment to make a major change in his life. Babur and many of his descendants were heavy wine drinkers. Perhaps this habit passed down from their ancestor Timur, who was known to serve lots of wine during his feasts and festivals. On this night, the day before his battle with the Rajputs, Babur decided to renounce alcohol. He even expressed his guilt about drinking wine in his memoirs. How long will you taste of sin? How long will you be polluted by your soul? How long will you follow your lust? You know raiding the kafir, you see your own death before you. You know he who is resolved to die will attain this state. He throws off all forbidden things from himself and cleanses himself of all sin. I rid myself of this transgression and repented of wine drinking, gold and silver vessels and goblets, all the implements of the assembly. I had brought and broke them all. Abandoning wine, I gave my heart rest. Babur had all of the wine in his camp poured out and mixed with salt to turn it into vinegar. Then he gave a rousing motivational speech to his troops. Better than life with a bad name is death with a good one. God the Most High has allotted to us such happiness and has created for us such good fortune that we die as martyrs or we kill as avengers of his cause. Therefore, 
must each of you take oath upon his holy word that he will not think of turning his face from this foe or withdraw from this deadly encounter so long as life is not rent from his body. He reminded his soldiers that those who die would be shaheed, or martyrs, and those who survived the fight would be Ghazis. This speech fired up his warriors who were now ready for battle. However, while Babur was firing up his troops at Sikri, he received word that his troops in other parts of India weren't doing so well. Some were facing stiff resistance in places like Sambal, Kanoj, and Gawalior, all cities in northern India. Many of his soldiers had even deserted the army. But Babur couldn't deal with these issues at the moment. Hence, he continued with his preparations to fight the Rajputs. The Battle of Kanwa The fight between the Mughals and the Rajputs began on March 17, 1527 and took place near a small village in East Rajasthan called Kanwa. Rana Sangha's forces lined up for battle opposite Babur's troops. Then the signal was given, and they charged headfirst towards the Mughals, swords in hand. Babur's troops did not flinch. Armed with guns and cannons, they opened fire on the Rajputs rushing towards them. The Rajputs were decimated. The Mughal guns simply mowed them down. With the noise from the guns and the battlefield obscured with smoke and the ground littered with bodies, the Rajputs were in complete disarray. With all this confusion, the Mughal infantry moved in, using their swords to cut down the survivors. The Rajputs tried to retreat, but Babur would not let up. He ordered his cannons forward, and they pounded the enemy even as they fled. Babur described the carnage in his memoirs. With stone cannon balls and matchlocks, the Hindus all were reduced as low as the elephant lords. Many mountains of bodies were created, and on every mountain running streams of blood. From lances of the splendid ranks, the fighters fled into mountains and plains. They turned their backs flying. The command of Allah is determinate decree, and praise be to Allah the all-hearing, all-knowing. Victory comes from Allah alone, the Almighty and Wise, written on the 25th of the month of Jamadathani in the year 933. The Mughals chased the Rajputs all the way back to their camp. At that point, Babur decided to turn back as his soldiers were exhausted from all the fighting. On their way back, they passed several enemy corpses, many of which belonged to the Rajput leadership. Among the dead was the leader of the Muslim Rajputs, Hassan Khan. Rana Sangha, however, survived the battle and managed to evade capture. He fled to Chittor in southern Rajasthan, his grand alliance shattered. Despite the horrible defeat he just suffered, he insisted on regrouping and going back to war against Babur. He was, after all, the leader of the warrior caste, and that's what they did. But Rana Sangha never got that chance. He died a few months later in January 1528. 
there is some suspicion that he was poisoned by his own military commanders who believed going back to war against Babur was a disastrous idea. They got rid of Rana Sangha to prevent him from leading them into destruction. After the victory, Babur ordered the title of Ghazi be added to his name. He also inscribed a poem on his seal. For the sake of Allah, I became a wanderer. I battled Kafir and Hindus. I was determined to become a Shaheed. Thanks to Allah, I became a Ghazi. Babur then marched on Alwar, the capital of Mawat, home of the Kanzada clan, the Muslim Rajputs. Hassan Khan's son, Nahar Khan, was the new leader of the Muslim Rajputs. Nahar Khan wisely surrendered to Babur without a fight. To prove his submission, Alwar's treasury was turned over to Humayun. With his victory at Kanwa and his victory at Alwa, Babur could now rightfully call himself Master of India. In the next episode, we will discuss Babur's campaign against the Afghans. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, Simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamichistory. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Muttaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 9. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Caliph Abdul Malik died in Shawwal 86 AH. His son, Walid ibn Abdul Malik, became the next Umayyad Caliph. Meanwhile, out in the eastern provinces, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was not happy with how, with how Mufaddal ibn Muhallab defeated Musa ibn Abdullah and his rebellion. And with that, let's continue our story of the Khilafat of Amir al-Mu'minin al-Walid ibn Abdul Malik. 
So Al-Walid received the Bayah, the Pledge of Allegiance, just after his father died in 86 AH. He buried his father and then he went to the mosque to address the people. I'm going to read the the speech that he gave according to Tariq Hatabri to the people when he addressed them. O people, there can be no hastening of that which God has delayed, nor any delaying of that which God has hastened. Death is part of God's decree, of his prior knowledge, and of what he has written for his prophets and the bearers of his throne. The one charged with this community has taken to the dwelling places of the pious that which justifies for God whatever he may dispense by way of severity toward him who occasions doubt and gentleness toward the people of right and merit, the people who establish such are the beacon of Islam and its waymarks as God has established, by making the pilgrimage to this house, campaigning against these frontier ways of access, and waging these wars on the enemy of God. He, that is my father, Abdul Malik, was neither incapable nor remiss. O people, incumbent upon you are obedience and cleaving to the collective body, for Satan is with the individual. O people, he who reveals to us his inner thoughts, that is of opposition, we shall smite that in which his eyes are, and he who remains silent will die of his malady, that is of his rancor. So in this brief message from Al-Walid, he is basically telling people that he will do his best to abide by Allah's commandments, but anyone who opposes him is in trouble, whether they oppose him openly or inwardly, they are in trouble. If they oppose him open, openly, then he will fight them and destroy them. And if they oppose him inwardly, then they will go mad with their own rancor and their own uh, hostility towards the Umayyad Caliphate. Now, I did mention that Al-Walid gave this speech in the, in the masjid in Damascus, obviously. Now, I want to be clear that this would not have been the great Umayyad mosque or the Umayyad masjid, which now stands in Damascus, because that had not yet been built. According to Wikipedia, and of course, you got to take some things from Wikipedia, you got to take most things from Wikipedia with a grain of salt, most Muslims at this time living in Damascus prayed at a local Byzantine cathedral, which would have been the Church of St. John. And even though you know, can't really always trust everything from Wikipedia, the fact of the matter is that we did discuss this uh, in a way in the previous season of the Umayyad Caliphate. In season one, episode 12, we discussed the relationship between the Umayyads and the Christians of Syria and Egypt. And during the, uh, that episode, we discussed how the Muslim prayer spaces were very close to the Christian prayer spaces and that both parties, especially the Muslims, that is, would use the other groups or the other religious groups, uh, holy places for worship. So this kind of plays into it. According to Wikipedia, the Muslims had a musalla attached to the Church of St. John, which the Muslims used for prayer, and they would use the regular cathedral space as an overflow. But eventually, the Muslim population outgrew this musalla, and Amir al-Mu'minin al-Walid acquired the entire cathedral, all of the Church of St. John. Now, it is, it is not clear, according to my notes from the previous season, it is very clear that Al-Walid actually just confiscated the Church of St. John. However, I'm not certain if that really happened. I would rather get some more evidence of that rather than take that one, that one bit of research, which came from one single book that I read. 
I would, I'd rather get a second opinion on that one, basically. How, whatever the case may be, the Muslims did, or I should say the Umayyad government did acquire the Church of St. John, tore it down, and in the following year began building the great Umayyad mosque. Okay, so let's move back to the east. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he decided to depose Mufaddal ibn Muhallab, who was the son of Muhallab and the brother of Yazid ibn Muhallab. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf deposed him as governor of Khorasan. We mentioned how he wasn't really happy with Mufaddal's handling of Musa ibn Abdullah's rebellion. Hajjaj replaced Mufaddal ibn Muhallab with a man named Qutayba ibn Muslim. This all occurred in 86 AH. 